Here we go. You are listening to Open Mic Friday Law and Gospel on this April the 16th in the year of our Lord, 2021. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and uh, we're still not yet in the studio, although there's an opportunity to start coming back to the studio pretty soon, so we might be able to do Open Mic Friday actually in the studio with you being able to phone in. But right now, we're just taking your emails, and we sure appreciate that. Although every now and then I get an email that I'm not really sure I can understand totally. And here's an example of one of them. Pastor, please answer with your insight when you have time. Is it a proper hermeneutic to proclaim the pure kerygma without it being rightly divided through the lens of the eschatological construct of the second coming. Is this not the benchmark of Christian history and koinonia, this side of the cross? Well, I had to read that a few times, and I think I know what the email writer is asking about. But if you're listening, maybe you can send me a little bit more understanding of what this is asking. But let me kind of divide it up a little bit. Is it a proper hermeneutic? Now, what does that mean? Hermeneutic is the way that one approaches the scripture to understand not just the interpretation, but the application of a message. We've talked a lot about this. Uh, For example, the lost sheep. It's pretty clear the interpretation. Uh, Shepherd finds the lost sheep, puts it on his shoulders, carries it home. But the application, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard a sermon, and this is usually by non Lutherans, who say that Jesus expects us to go out and find those lost sheep and bring them home to the church to witness to them about how they are saved. No, that's not the application of that at all. The parable of the lost sheep application is instead that you were a lost sheep. Jesus found you. He gave you faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that faith, you are saved by trusting the promises of the gospel. So that's a proper hermeneutic a proper interpretation and application. Now, the letter writer goes on, is it a proper hermeneutic to proclaim the pure kerygma? What's kerygma? Kerygma is the issue of Christianity, the teaching of Christianity. It is what Jesus came for, to tell us that we are not saved by our works, We're saved instead by grace through faith so that nobody can boast, boy, I saved myself. So to retranslate a little bit this letter, is it a proper interpretation application to proclaim the proper message of Christianity without it being rightly divided through the lens of the eschatological construct of the second coming? Now, what does that mean? 
eschatological, this is referring to what is going to be happening in the future of the second coming. In other words, are you really able to explain the pure message of Christianity without talking about Christ's second coming? Definitely, it's impossible to talk about the pure message without talking about Christ's first coming. If you'll recall during the season of Advent, which means to come, there are a number of comings of Christ that can be talked about in the Bible. And all of them are important for the proper message of Christianity. The first coming, of course, is his coming in Bethlehem as a baby. That's the first advent. The the second coming would be his coming into your heart through faith. That could be by baptism or hearing the word of God. Another coming is, of course, Judgment Day coming. Now, there are other comings of Jesus. He's found throughout the whole Old Testament. His name is the angel of the Lord a lot of times with a definite article, like when Moses was on Mount Sinai at the burning bush. That was Jesus talking to him who said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So can you talk about the message of Christianity without mentioning his second coming? I don't think so, because it's found even in the Old Testament. Remember, you have that wonderful example from Job. I know that my Redeemer lives, and I will see him face to face. What's Job talking about? He's talking about the second coming, when he will have a new body, having risen from the dead, and that body, his eyes will be able to see God, which a human being cannot do now. Even when Moses met God on Mount Sinai, it says that God had his backside toward Moses. So to have a complete teaching of the proper message of Christianity, I do agree with the letter writer that you do need to talk about Christ's coming. And one of the comings is, of course, Judgment Day. Now, a lot of Christians are afraid of Judgment Day. And why are they afraid of Judgment Day? They're afraid of Judgment Day because they're not sure that they're going to be able to be saved as they look at their works. Well, let me tell you, as a pastor, you are not going to be saved if you look at your works. You need to look at the works of Jesus Christ, specifically the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension, to know that he has never left you and will always be with you. So I think I've understood what the letter writer was saying, but there's some interesting words there. If you want to continue the conversation, email me with any clarification in case I've missed something. All right, another email. Dear Pastor Baker, I've been listening to your show lately, finding it very interesting. I've been a Lutheran all my life. 
a good friend of mine, is also Lutheran. We lost contact after high school, but saw each other again recently. Later, I found out she has some really different ideas about God. She feels that her God is all love, and there's no hell, because her God is all love. I said, yes, God is love, but he's also just. She agreed, meaning just as fair. I asked her one time if she believed in Jesus, and she said only as a man like Mohammed. She gets very defensive when she talks about her God and brings up questions and comments that I haven't been able to answer. She also feels like she shouldn't have to defend her faith or have to go to church because her faith is personal. I'm very concerned about her spiritual life. I would like to see her in heaven. I can't figure out how she got so far off track. She did say one time that communion bothered her because she read something in the Bible that didn't make sense. She used to talk to her pastor about it, but obviously didn't get an answer that satisfied her. I felt like I was making things worse, so I stopped talking to her about God. Do you think I should continue to try to talk to her? If so, what kinds of things can I say? She says the Bible has been translated so much. How can a person know what's true and what isn't? I've been praying for her. Also, I'm in a home Bible group with a couple of others, and they say that maybe I planted some seeds and the Holy Spirit has to do the rest. They also said that maybe some other people have or will plant some seeds, and at the right time, the Holy Spirit will work in her. That makes me feel some better, but should a Christian keep trying? Okay, uh, thanks so very much. That's a, a great letter. A couple of things I would say. Number one, she has questions that you are not able to answer. That means you should take those questions and go to your pastor, because you're attending a church, and ask him, and he should be able to answer the questions. And that would give you an opportunity when you have your next conversation with her, saying, you know, you asked me once, you tell her the question, and give her the answer. And the advice you got from your Bible study was very good, that there can be other seeds to be planted. Remember, even Paul talks about that. So-and-so planted, so-and-so watered, but, but finally, God is the one who gives the growth. And so you leave it up to the Holy Spirit. I would not stop talking to her, particularly asking her the questions that she has. Now, she says, for example, we'll take one, that, she says, the Bible has been translated so much, how can a person know what's true 
and what isn't. Now, I have a Bible on a computer program that has about 50 translations. They're not all in English. They're in different languages, etc. But as I look at all the English translations, and there's a lot of them, you've got the ESV, the King James, the New King James, the RSV, the NIV, the New American Standard, and the list goes on. When I take a look side by side to these Bibles, there's not really much difference at all as to what they are saying. There's not a contradiction found in some Bibles versus others. Now, the problem is the English a lot of times is difficult to be translated from the Greek and the Hebrew because Greek and Hebrew words can have some nuances that there is no English word that captures them all. But if you take a look at the scripture, for example, the King James and New King James, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes. Now, when you take a look at the New King James, it changes whosoever to whoever. Big deal. It means the very same. And nobody can say, well, that is such a different translation, the whoever from the whosoever, that how do we know what is true? No, we need to remember that the English are translations trying to get across the sense of the Greek Bible. Somebody once asked me, what's the favorite Bible I like using? And the answer is the original Greek and the original Hebrew as much as we have it in the various manuscripts. Now, one of the best translations is the New American Standard, and so also is the ESV. And the reason that they are good translations is they're very close to the original. There are some Bibles that are really called paraphrases. They have the translator say the verse in a way that appears to make sense. Now, some of those paraphrases are in error as to how the particular translator interprets the scripture. So I would try and stick with a scripture where it is very close to the original Hebrew and Greek. But the answer to her is I can take any Bible she will give me and find all the truths about Christianity within it. And so these different translations are often done. For example, I don't think that somebody can understand all the words of the original King James Version because we don't speak like that anymore, the English. And so the new King James is an update on our English, and I don't see any problem with that. But if I can help you more, you either go to your pastor and ask the questions that she has to give her proper answers, or write to me, and I'll try and give you answers to her questions. But should you keep on trying? Jesus had, boy, disciples that just never got it for three years. 
he kept on teaching them until after the resurrection and especially Pentecost when they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. They were able to understand this. Okay, another email. Uh, Dr. Baker, subject, Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I'm so looking forward to your treatment of this. This is being hailed with high honors by a Christian blogger as a terrific sermon that caused revival in America. Now, Jonathan Edwards, the sermon centers in the hands of an angry God, really is almost all law. Uh, Now, I'm saying this part, that there's hardly any gospel in it at all. And it really is to make people really concerned about their salvation. One can almost say it's a kind of a John the Baptist type of preaching to wake people up to their sins, to prepare them for the coming of the gospel. But there's no gospel really found in sinners in the hands of an angry God. The letter writer continues. After reading Walther's Law and Gospel, I immediately went to my copy of Jonathan Edwards' sermon. I walked away surely feeling the fires on the sole of my feet, but I saw no gospel here. At any rate, I'm interested in your treatment. Perhaps I am being harsh or being hard, so I'm happy to adjust to my thinking. God's blessing to you, your friend. And then he signs it. Well, there's no doubt that a proper law of, a proper gospel of law, you will feel the fires on the soles of your feet in the sense that you will be burned by the law. Remember, the purpose of the law, one of its primary purposes, is to show your sin, SOS. God uses the law in two other purposes. He gives the law to the government, but that doesn't really have much to do with religion because the government uses the law to calm down people, to stop riots in order to try and keep peace. And so you have speed limits, you have tax laws. Uh, If you're going to build a building, you've got to do it according to certain laws. That's fine. But then there's a third use of the law. That use is where God reveals to you his will for you. This can be very important. I don't use the third use that often with Christians because they pretty well know what God's will is from the Ten Commandments. But every now and then, something happens in society and you begin to wonder, okay, what is God's will? A good example is in the area of medicine. There's a a lot of advances in medicine that they didn't have years ago. So that where normally somebody would have died from a disease, uh, today they are able to apparently keep them alive with machines 
that keep them breathing and their heart beating. But the question is, uh, should we turn those machines off? That's not a answer so-called found in the Bible. So the church has had to develop a theology about that to help people make a decision. And our decision has come to the point that you are not to actively do something to kill someone, but if passively something happens and a person dies by God's will, that is okay. So for example, I had an example where the person was still breathing, heart beating because of a machine, but they were found to be brain dead, which means they would never come back to consciousness. In that situation, the church would advise turning off the machines and allowing God to take over whether or not to put the person to death. We are therefore totally against those states that allow a physician to murder a patient who desires to die. You've got a lot of people who are in a terrible state. They may be unable to get out of a bed and they want to die with dignity. What does that mean? To die with dignity means to allow God to take you when he is ready. You do not die with dignity by committing suicide, by allowing a doctor to come in and give you medicine that will actually put you to death. That's not dignified. That is demonic. And so the church can speak out on issues where the third use of the law is quite helpful to people. This email uh, reminds me of something that I've been saying on Law and Gospel for 24 years now. When you begin to understand law and gospel, then you have an attitude and an ability to listen to other theologies and recognize that they are in error. Uh, for example, I had this problem for a while where I would end a sermon with a lettuce or a French ending, a salad or a French ending. And a professor at the seminary cautioned me in that because I would often end a sermon with salad ending, let us therefore, or a French ending, may we therefore do this. And he pointed out to my, me that I was again using the law as an ending to the sermon. And he was correct. So I always attempt to make sure that every sermon I preach ends on a note of the gospel. Well, what does that mean? It means that you give comfort and hope to people who are in the worst of situations. Uh, yesterday with Wes Reimnitz, we were talking about that pill that people supposedly can take at home to cause an abortion by starving the baby within their womb to death and then expelling the baby with another pill. Well, as Wes Reimnitz 
pointed out, we still have a message for those women who realize what a sin they have done. And that message is not like what we said before, Jonathan Edwards talking about you're a sinner in the hands of an angry God and there's no hope of salvation. No, there's always a hope of salvation. As you repent of your sin, come to a knowledge of what you have done is wrong and perhaps never do it again and therefore turn to Jesus Christ who will give you a proper comfort because he died on the cross for that sin. Well, I'm Tom Baker. You've been listening to Law and Gospel. And remember on Mondays, we take a look at the reading for the following Sunday and we try and figure out, okay, how is law and gospel used in this reading? And the purpose of that is to help you start to get an ability to recognize sermons like Jonathan Edwards that really have no gospel in it. And we pray indeed that you'll be able to read the Bible, seeing how the gospel permeates everywhere. I'm Tom Baker. Thanks for listening. Join me on Monday. God bless you. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.